0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keane. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: Your main event of the week, really. Chairman Powell will be speaking in Jackson Hole. Really pleased to say that here in New York, right here, right now, Dana Peterson joins us. Cities, global economist. Good morning to you, Dana.
2: Good morning, how are you?
1: Let's talk about what you've seen in the Fed Minutes and what you expect from Chairman Powell on Friday. Just walk us through it.
2: Sure, I mean, the Fed Minutes are a little bit dated, but I think what's important is that the Fed was, again, very clear about what the reasons for why they cut interest rates. Three things. Number one, inflation persistently missing their 2% target and concerns about making sure that they achieve that target over the next two years. Number two, a lot of concern about the global economy. Um, reflected in financial markets, and number three, uncertainty. Uncertainty brought about by the trade wars between the U.S. and the rest of the world. And so with those three things, the Fed said, yes, we're implementing this insurance cut, and this is a mid-cycle adjustment. Um, What is the Fed looking at? I see six things. On the one hand, the Fed's looking at the real economy, growth, inflation, and the labor market. On the other hand, the Fed is looking at financial conditions, the external environment, and the generalized degree of uncertainty. And so with those things, at least three of the six are signaling red signals right now. Right. Uh, I love the idea of, of six things. It's sort of like throw
3: a dart, which one's going to actually be uh, the most important to look at at any given moment. So Dana, I want you to weigh in on the on the sort of hypothetical that john and i were talking about let's say the fed cuts rates by 75 basis points in september totally surprises everybody i'm not saying this is likely possible whatever they're not going to do this but let's just say they do will that steepen the yield curve will that prompt a further rally in stocks or will that send shock and and fear through markets
2: well, I'm going to be the two-handed economist a little bit here. Uh,
1: <laughs> I wouldn't expect anything else to Continue, please.
2: Well, first There's of all, <laughs> I mean, first of all, we probably would be among those uh, analysts lined up outside of your window saying, hey, the Fed just uh, wasted, you know, a lot of precious um, monetary policy space. Um, but the thing is that you have these, these, these two different uh, things that are weighing on the yield curve at the short end, Yes, markets are expecting the Fed, are sh- believing that the Fed should go 7500 100 basis points. At the other end of the curve, you have a lot of pressure because there are concerns about the equity market. Um, we're looking at earnings for the second half of this year. They're going to be downgraded considerably. And so you have this flight to quality. That's great, the US has seen his quality. Um, but with all those things, the Fed can't possibly really affect everything. Um, The Fed has the most control over the shorter end of the curve, and certainly if the Fed does implement all of this, you still have the trade wars, and everyone's thinking that the Fed can offset the negative effects of policies in Washington.
1: Well, Dana, just to build on Lisa's question, I think it's an important one. Typically, what you would expect is the curve to bull steeper and the front end yields to drop aggressively and the longer end maybe even pick up. What we've seen, though, in places like Europe, in Japan, and increasingly maybe even here in the United States, is when we start to think about easing, where the short rate goes, that just bleeds across the curve and the whole curve just becomes a whole lot shallower. Do you see any reason to believe why cutting aggressively will actually boost growth expectations, boost inflation expectations to the extent that people won't just take that view on short rates and say, you know what, I just think we're going to be low for a whole lot longer. I'm going to drop the whole curve down, flatter, 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 and just beat the whole thing even lower.
2: Your sentiments are exactly what our rate strategists have been saying, that if the Fed goes goes hard in terms of cutting interest rates, that we were not going to see this steepening of the yield curve because everyone globally is going to expect low for longer, lower growth rates, uh, potentially lower inflation, lower interest rates, both nominal and real. And so we're not going to see this steepening. And that's the challenge for the Fed. What does the Fed do in this environment? Let's say we do get a trade deal. Let's say the US and China make
3: progress. Does that materially change the outlook? And the reason why I'm asking this is because Stephen Major of HSBC, who's gotten the rates picture, correct. He's been sort of the lone voice getting it right year after year. He came out and said not even that would be enough to cause yields to go
2: up. At this point, it's deeper than that. Would you agree? Well, we would say this, that even if there is a deal, it's uncertain what this deal might look like. It's probably going to be a veneer of a deal. But the damage has already been done. Globally, as well as in the U.S., we've already seen businesses pull back. They've retrenched with respect to investment. Um, Factory activity has collapsed. People, uh, you know, with the trade deals, or rather with the trade wars, we have businesses that are losing clients. You can't reverse all of that, and the damage has already been done, and you would need a very significant trade deal and some reorientation that would benefit the global economy from trade.
1: Can we end on a bright spot? Just a little one, just a little (laughs) glimmer of hope. What,
2: that wasn't helpful to you?
1: In Germany, incredibly, incredibly important manufacturing sector. We'll all agree with that. Much more important for Germany than, say, the United States. And yet still, the service sector is okay. Can't the United States take a little bit of confidence from that? That in Germany, they have a terrible manufacturing situation right now and services are still holding up. If that's the case, isn't that pretty encouraging for the United States?
2: Well, I think as an economist, anything that (laughs) that certainly is encouraging. And it's actually a story we're seeing around the world, including in the U.S., where manufacturing is tanking, um, reflecting the fact that China has been weakening for some time, even before the trade wars. And then you have the trade wars layered on. But the services sector has been doing well and also consumers are still spending. And so there are some bright spots Uh, regionally, domestically, and among a number of economies. But you cannot ignore the fact that trade globally has collapsed, even in the US. Exports plus imports, when you add them together, growth rates have dropped to zero.
1: Dana, it's great to catch up with you. Really thoughtful stuff, as always. Dana Peterson, Cities Global Economist. Great to have you with me, Lisa, and great to have Lisa with us on a big day for central banking as the annual symposium in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, kicks off with the Federal Reserve. The host Fed president, the Kansas City chief, of course, Esther George, kicks things off for us. She caught up with Michael McKee a little bit earlier on. Here's what she had to say about the outlook for monetary policy. Take a listen.
4: I think where rates are right now relative to the unemployment rate and inflation suggest we're at a sort of equilibrium right now and I'd be happy to leave rates here absent seeing either some weakness or some strengthening, some kind of upside risk that would cause me to think rates should be somewhere else.
5: Where would you put uh, the neutral rate right now relative to where you are? Are you tight? Are you loose? uh, Accommodative? How, How do you see it?
4: So I I would judge a policy to be at neutral or even accommodative with this last rate cut. If you think about where real interest rates are uh, relative to the rate of inflation and where the Fed funds rate is, we're operating close to zero with real rates. I can't believe that that is tight in any sense uh, for the economy right now.
5: Would you push back against the argument then that the December rate increase was a mistake on the Fed's part?
4: So I think in my public speeches, my view was we were beginning to see mounting downside risk at that time, and that uh, those were beginning to have some concern about the outlook. It influenced my outlook in terms of flattening a path of policy at that point. But I think as we've judged over the last two quarters, the economy has continued to grow, and I don't think I think the economy has absorbed that. So,
5: well, if you're uh, not ready to put more accommodation into the economy but you don't want to pre-commit, would you be able to say that you would definitely dissent on a 50 basis point cut like the markets are calling for?
4: I don't see a case for a 50 basis point cut today, but again, I'm mindful in these decisions. You're making judgments about how you read the data up until the time of the meeting. And importantly for me, I use that meeting to listen to my colleagues, to hear what their arguments are, how they weight some of those risks. So it's always difficult for me to prejudge where I will come out uh, until I get into that meeting.
5: Do you think markets are looking at the economy rationally these days?
4: I don't know, I'm not in the markets to know um, what those judgments are. I think markets see how the rest of the world is slowing. I think uncertainty never plays well um, in the markets. So I understand why you see fear and uncertainty right now. That isn't the metric, though, that um, I feel we have to focus on. We have a clear mandate and, I think, a long-term view that we have to stay focused on.
5: Agriculture is big in your district. Uh, Farmers have complained that with the trade wars, they can't sell. Prices have gone down. Yet, at the same time, the administration is using the extra taxes we're all paying in tariffs to compensate the farmers. Mm -hmm. So are they badly off or are they making it through okay because of these payments? What's the real story with that?
4: So farmers began to experience a real hit to their incomes going back before the tariffs. Uh, Commodity prices for grains came off in 2014. So we're now into a fifth year of low farm incomes. That certainly stresses that sector, uh, but By and large, those farmers are not leveraged as they may have been in past cycles. Um, They would much prefer having outlets for their product as opposed to subsidies coming in for that. So I don't think it's an even uh, substitution for them. But I think they're going to continue to struggle until uh, the price of their commodity moves up.
5: I know uh, you would tell me that the Fed is not influenced by politics. You go into the room and you put all that aside. You don't listen but it's every day now, is it tiresome?
4: So I'll tell you, you have to be focused on what your job is, and you have to understand that an institution like the Fed, as many other uh, aspects of our government, is built around checks and balances. So I have the ability to think about, uh, with complete accountability to Congress for our mandate, being transparent about my own views, to focus on what serves the American public best, and I think what serves them best is for uh, the committee to remain focused on how do we achieve maximum employment and stable prices for the public. And I feel good that that's where the committee is focused.
1: The Kansas City Fed president Esther George there dissenting against that rate cut at the end of July. Speaking to Bloomberg's Michael McKee out of Jackson Hole, Wyoming, as we kick off that annual symposium. G7, we finally have a load of politicians getting together and trying to sort out some problems. And I'm really pleased to say that joining us here in New York, Bob Hormats, Kissinger Vice Chair. Bob, I had no idea. Sometimes I have to apologize that we get too familiar with fantastic guests. And then a piece of paper crosses my desk and I find out that you've been the U.S. Sherpa, the presidential planner and note taker in eight G7 summits going all the way back to 1975, Bob. That's incredible.
0: Yes, I uh, started out in Rambouillet, um, 1975 in France, when we were just coming out of uh, the crisis that was caused by the oil price increases of 1973. And the world was trying to figure out how to get back on uh, on a growth trajectory without triggering a lot of inflation. And You know, we had the President of the United States, the President of France, Chancellor of Germany, Prime Minister of Japan, and others. They're working together. And the notion of a collective effort by the G7 to deal with the problems was really palpable. They were all really on the same track. Now, in contrast, in the meeting we're going to have in Biarritz on the 24th, there's division within the G7, intense division with the US threatening tariffs on automobiles, which will affect Germany and Japan. There are already tariffs on aluminum and steel, uh, and and the sense of American leadership of the global economic order, constructive leadership that was so palpable then when we had President Ford, who was our president, now is not there at all in divisions, could make this a, a more negative environment uh, than a positive one and undermine confidence that would be harmful
1: you've touched on the changes initially let's explore them further typically the interpretation and perception from the outside looking in is that these were very scripted events diplomats behind the scenes got together they basically scripted all the bilaterals and the outcome was almost predetermined before the g7 happens sometimes bob was that the case was that actually what happens
0: and just how unscripted is it now compared to back then that's half right i mean there was a lot of scripting in part because the officials who were working on this, and I was the American official, there were French, German, Japanese, and others. Uh, we had a general idea of what our heads of state wanted. We had a general idea of how the countries, the major economies, and financial powers should work together to deal with the problem, and we moved things ahead. But the final deal, the final arrangements, were not just what was in the communique, although that was important, but in the minds, and in the policies, and in the uh, future pursuits, of the leaders that they were going to work together and stay in touch with one another and try to get out of this together. And so therefore, it was not just the words, but the general cooperative attitude um, of the leaders. And we don't have... That now, the last uh, G7, we had a big discussion over communicate language. The U.S. didn't want yeah. language, anti-protectionist language. And we know these leaders are at odds on everything. Britain's having its own problems. The, the, the prime minister is really not going to be focused on G7 issues. Uh, Angela Merkel, German chancellor, is now going to be uh, sort of in her end, the end of her period of time as chancellor. Macron is working very hard and really does have a strong leadership view, but has a lot of pressures internally. Uh, Prime Minister Abe has played a very constructive role in moving things ahead in, in in Asia, but now he's got a yen that's rising. He's not happy with that at the time he wants to put on uh, a consumption tax. And of course, the United States, which really doesn't know whether it wants to be the leader of the multilateral uh, liberal economic order, or an America first, which is protectionist and is disruptive of that order. And others think the United States is moving in the latter direction, which means it's hardly gonna be the the leader of a constructive G7 process.
3: Just about a, a minute here. I'm wondering, from your perspective, we're talking a lot about monetary policy, but how the focus really is shifting to fiscal stimulus. From your point of view, what is the one thing that fiscal policymakers could do that could help the economy?
0: Well, I think the policies that could really help the economy are not so much additional government stimulus of the kind we had in 2008, for instance. Uh, and some countries already have big budget deficits and probably are not going to be able to do that. The U.S., I think, would just be adding to debt, probably not boosting the economy. I think the, the restoring some sense of confidence in the outlook dealing with the levels of uncertainty that have arisen as a result of trade wars, as a result of the potential threat of of, of currency competition or currency wars, if the leaders could move ahead in a constructive way to reduce trade and investment tensions and avoid threats of new tariffs and reduce the tariffs that have been imposed, particularly by the United States of late. That would help. And of course, a resolution of the Brexit issue would would help as well. Bob,
1: it's always great to get your insight. And we get it so often. I should not complain about it ever. And I shouldn't be complacent about it. Bob Hormats, great to see you as always. It's a pleasure to great to have you with us. The Kissinger Vice Chair then, joining us ahead of the G7.
6: This is a treat here. We, uh, our good friend, Brian Weezer, he's a Group M uh, president for Business Intelligence. He's been covering the media, uh, internet, technology space, advertising space for years from all sides, and, uh, and we've got him here this morning. Brian, thanks so much for joining us on the phone. Um, you know, I think I'd like to start with the deal that you and I and every other media investor has been kind of waiting for, seem- seemingly for years, which is, this Viacom CBS merger it looks like they're getting back together. What does this mean for your side of the street, Madison Avenue advertisers? Do they even care?
7: Well, yeah. First of all, thanks for having me on. Um, I, I, I do think that uh, they care because it does uh, concentrate a little more inventory, which, in this context, is probably a good thing. Unbalanced, it, it things like you know, Viacom, uh, has a product called, um, has a number of what they call advanced, uh, products. Um, and being able to apply those across CBS inventory, being able to run a campaign across uh, the combined CBS Viacom inventory together, which is hopefully something that happens, uh, is probably an incrementally good thing. It's not a game changer by any stretch, but that's positive. It's, and at the same time, the, the concentration of, uh, of uh, ad inventory doesn't meaningfully alter the dynamics in terms of who has what power in the industry. CBS was already one of the first places you would go to spend money uh, because of the broadcast network. Viacom was already important because, um, you know, they, they could sell a lot of inventory cheaply. Um, I think the bigger I- I- implications are sort of what comes next. Like, do they keep Simon and & Schuster and then or not, and then do they sell it and get some, uh, free up some capital to do something else that's interesting? Um, Do they uh, double down on uh, their studio um, and then at the same time double down on what CBS All Access is? Or do they try to become this uh, arms merchant of content uh, and try to replicate what Warner Brothers was, which is to say every company's second favorite supplier of content um, I don't know that they can do both by the way <clears throat> but but the implications for the industry will follow from what they choose to do once they figure out what they're going to do
3: Brian I find it so interesting this transformation that's been going on from cable to online and digital and streaming and as an advertiser as a try I try to understand how to best reach consumers and I'm wondering from your perspective Which platform is the further along in terms of uh, creating an advertising platform that is really accessible and and effective with consumers?
7: Well, I mean, the oldest, one of the older ones, uh, uh, broadcast television is probably still that thing. It still is. um, Oh yeah, I mean, the 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 reach of broadcast TV is still unparalleled. Um, Nothing comes close. And, And on top of that, the um, you know, the impact of sites on emotion, the pairing of, uh, the content brand with an advertiser's brand. Uh, I mean, you know, it, 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 it it's no mistake that, you know, it, it, a more, most extreme example I could point to is something like Apple, the advertiser. Last I checked, they almost only advertise on broadcast TV and outdoor billboards, right? And which, which computer company has a brand left, right? It's, it's Apple. Yep,
6: exactly. So, I mean, so Brian, you think about it here. um, One of the things that businesses that Viacom had that I thought was pretty interesting and it doesn't get a lot of play when we think about streaming, we think about Netflix, all the subscription driven uh, streaming services, again, like Netflix or Hulu, but Viacom bought this company called Pluto TV. And it's, I think it's what it's called advertising streaming video on demand. Tell us about kind of that market. And do you think that's a growing viable market for uh, the entertainment sector?
7: Yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't think of it as anything particularly different. It's just a bunch of video inventory that's ad-supported. Uh, in fact, I often find myself watching Bloomberg on uh, Pluto when whatever reason. Thank I'm you for that. that. You
2: don't, you yeah. don't say.
7: Well, right now, it's funny. I'm, I'm streaming uh, the the Bloomberg on my uh, over Xfinity. The Comcast uh, service. And if that was down for some reason or my password wasn't working or whatever, I can go and watch it on Pluto for free. Now, Viacom has some inventory there. So they're just running ads on programming that comes from Bluebird in that case. And there's a couple of hundred other channels, many of which also run on traditional TV. So I wouldn't think of it as necessarily anything overly different. It's just premium video inventory. <laughs>
3: One thing I'm wondering, though, when you talk about cable TV and how that still is the best distribution network in terms of power and reach, I'm wondering, though, if the time has changed, the sort of 30-second spot, whether you're seeing it compressed, how is that sort of evolving?
7: Yeah, I mean, in a traditional TV format, uh, it really hasn't changed much at all. Um, That said, I think that the, there's this idea that you should be able to uh, uh, create video assets for digital environments where maybe it's inside of a news feed and a 30-second ad just won't work. You need assets that can be, you know, can work in maybe two seconds, if not six. Um, but at the end of the day, it's a very different kind of uh, ad. I, I actually think of those sorts of ads as the evolution of rich media. If you go back, you know, to the dawn of the internet, you had simple banner ads, right, which were just up display ads. Um, As technology uh, became better, as uh, connections became faster, you had moving images on those banner ads. And then as time progressed, you could have video elements inside of those ads. And now we're at a point where in the same place where you would have consumed a banner ad, there might be a, a place where you could roll your cursor over it and then a video ad would pop up. It's a very different proposition because you're not, as an advertiser, you're not pairing uh, sight, sound, in motion of the content with your brand. You're not borrowing brand equity in the same way. For whatever reason, the brand equity that a consumer attaches to the content doesn't translate to the brand, the advertiser's brand, in the same way in that context, right? If I watch Bloomberg and I see a video ad, I may associate the quality of the programming I've just seen with the brand who's advertising it doesn't always translate as well for whatever reason in in other environments. So back to the point of the uh, a two second ad or a six second ad. You've got a very different objective in terms of what you're trying to do and, and what your your business goal is to run again in the first right.
6: place. Uh, Brian Weiser, thanks so much for joining us and giving us uh, uh, a good chunk of your time this morning. Talk about what's going on in the world of media and how advertisers are interacting with all the new media out there. Brian is the Group M Global President for uh, Business Intelligence. Uh, we appreciate his time. And, uh, you know, I think it's interesting to see, but if you look at the dollars flowing to digital media, there's just no let-up. So even though there's Facebook issues and you know data privacy issues, issues, brand security issues, and you would think brands might pull away from some of these platforms. The the data just doesn't show it.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.